You are listening to Let It Out with me. I'm Katie, your host, and this is the podcast where I interview creative people, interesting people, smart people, funny people, people that I just want to have a conversation with, like today's guest, Dan Lerner. And I found out about Dan a couple months ago because he teaches the most popular elective class at NYU, and it's called The Science of Happiness. And in addition to being a professor and teaching that class, he has extensively studied psychology and positive psychology, which we get into in this episode, and he tells me about the history of psychology and how positive psychology became a thing. It's very, very interesting, that specific part of the conversation. We talk about social media, we talk about relationships, we of course talk about the science of happiness, and peak performance, because he's a peak performance coach who just wrote a book called You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and Life. And anyway, I just really liked this guy. He was super nice, and I'm going to get to that episode really soon, so you'll, you'll hear all about him. Anyway, before that, I want to talk about our sponsor. The sponsor of this week's episode is Care of Vitamins. You guys, I love Care of Vitamins. You probably love them as well by this point because they've been a sponsor for a while. And, you know, the best thing about them being a sponsor, really, to be honest, is that you get to try them for 50% off your first order using the code Katie. So probably a lot of you have tried them already. And if you have, you know that you go to TakeCareOf.com And on that website, you take a quiz. And this quiz is fantastic. It's much like a personality test, which, side note, we talk a lot about a new personality test in this episode, which I'll tell you about in a second. But anyway, we're talking about care of right now. And I love taking a good personality test. And this one is special because what this one does is it asks you questions about your lifestyle, your diet, your energy levels, your skin, your digestion, how often you're pooping. And from there, it curates for you the exact combination of vitamins that your body needs to feel energized, feel productive, feel happy. And then it sends you in the mail these beautiful packaged boxes. And within the boxes are these little containers that say your name on them, which, you know, we love personalized things. So that's a pro. And then also, you know, you don't have to take all of your ugly supplement bottles And I mean, they're not ugly, but they're just, you know, clutter and you don't have to open them all up separately. Put your vitamins in a little container. Remember to take them with you when you're traveling. Remember to take them with you when you're going to the work or the coffee shop or, you know, wherever the cool places you guys are going. Instead, you just get to take the little individualized packet that says your name has the highest quality ingredients of vitamins in them that are exactly what your body needs, and you just throw it in your bag, your purse, your backpack, I don't know what you carry, but you can just put one of your care of supplement containers right in there, or you put five of them in there for the whole week and just switch them out on Sundays, whatever you wanna do. Anyway, I love care of vitamins. It actually saves you money on 
buying supplements because you buy what you actually need, which is fantastic. So remember to go to TakeCareOf.com. That's TakeCareOf.com. And use the code Katie, K-A-T-I-E. That's my name. It's also the code. And that gives you 50% off. 50%. That is half of the percents off. You guys, I'm very passionate about this. I love them. And I want them to keep supporting the podcast. I want them to support your body. I want them to support my body's health. So, you know, it helps out the podcast if you try them. If you've been thinking about trying them, but you weren't sure, this is the week to do it. Try it. Use the code. It lets them know that we sent you. And anyway, I want to get to this conversation with Dan, but I mentioned a personality test other than the care of one. And this one is called the Via Strengths Test. And you learn your signature strengths. And what I like about this test is that it focuses on the positive instead of the negative. And you'll hear Dan and I, he's the one that told me about this. And we talk all about this in this week's episode, but I wanted to make sure I actually took the personality test before I recorded this, I was going to say theme song, before I recorded this intro, because I wanted to tell you guys what mine was. And, oh, I'll just tell you at the end of the episode. Uh, it's making you listen to the end. But you know what? Listen to the end where I tell you what my signature strengths are, and I will also tell you the emoji for the episode. It's a great one this week, I think. And how much I love you, and, you know, just some other things. So I'll talk to you guys then. Enjoy this episode with Dan. So I've been liking starting the podcast recently. Before we get into your work and your background and then kind of your future vision and you know, the future and the past, basically. I like to start in the present. So what have you been learning lately, realizing, or just contemplating in the last, like, today or the last week huh. or maybe month, but as present as you can go? Oh, wow. Well, you know, this this, this book that of, of mine, the first book is coming out in in about three weeks. So that's been pretty, it's been on my mind pretty, pretty, pretty consistently, I have to say. Um, and and you, one constantly thinks about you know, what's, at least I constantly think about, what's the impact that I'm having? What are the opportunities here uh, to reach out and help people? And um, the more I think through what we've written, the more I think through um, what we're going to be doing tomorrow and next month and the month after that, I, I think that for me it's really just about, uh, it's, it's just been about thinking about how people flourish, you know, in such unique ways. You know, for me, I, I've always thought about I've been fascinated by how people flourish in unique ways, how every individual is different. But the more that I've been able to think about this, think about the students who are reading it, the parents who are reading it, think about the work that I do in the classroom, the people I encounter on the street, um, just how unique every opportunity is. So um, yeah. it's been it's been really fun to be particularly mindful about, about that. Cool. Yeah. Well, you're a professor of psychology and you teach one of the most popular elective classes at NYU which I want to get into but first let's mm -hmm. start with how did you have you always been into psychology did you know that you wanted to be a professor how did you kind of get started with things so technically I, I am a clinical instructor at NYU um, and I teach this class called the science of happiness as you said I, I will say this uh, it is not at all what I would have expected had you asked me what I would be doing five or ten, uh, let's say six, because I've been teaching this course for five years, but six or ten or fifteen or forty years ago, not at all. Um, you know, the, the way that I found myself into this, uh, found myself in this position was um, I, I started in music. I started in, uh, well, how do I put this? So 
my earliest memories in life were of music. Um, my parents were both professional musicians. So I grew up in this household where um, they loved what they did. They, they did it at home. They, they brought music home. They played together. They played around the world. And so for me, I, I, I had this idea, I had this understanding that the way that people would thrive, would flourish in their life would be by doing something that they loved uh, and also doing something that they had a particular talent in. And uh, as I grew up, I played, I played the cello growing up and I thought this could be something that I do for the rest of my life. I always figured my life would be in music. And when I graduated from, from college, I, well, I said at the end of my freshman year of college, I called my dad and I said, you know, I think this is what I want to do for a living. I, I think I, I want to be a cellist. My father was in the Pittsburgh Symphony. He was a flute player, and he was thrilled. And he said, this is amazing, wonderful. We will do for you what my parents did for me. Uh, we'll support you. You come home from college. We'll support you for a year. And uh, you practice every day from 9 to 5. And um, at the end of the year, you go audition for conservatories and music, um, music schools. And, and that will be how you, how you find your way into um, a career as a musician. And I thought, wow, that sounds horrible. <laughs> that is like the last thing I want to do in my life. <laughs> like here I am at school and I have these amazing friends and it's a wonderful experience and I'm writing for the paper and I have a radio show and um, it, it was just way too fantastic to leave. So I thought, what is it that I'm going to do? I mean, clearly I'm not going to play. Um, so I started exploring different avenues in the music business. I um, I would work every summer, every spring break, every winter break at a music festival, an opera company. Uh, stage managing, fundraising, something. And one summer when I was working at the Santa Fe Opera, I met a bunch of agents. My mother happened to be singing there that summer as well, and she, she had agents, but I hadn't really spoken to her agents. And I, I met a bunch of agents, and I, I thought, wait a second, what you do for a living is you help young musicians uh, develop their career and really be the very best they can be. I thought, that's amazing. Like, what an amazing opportunity to get to help multiple people pursue something that I totally got, which was that that drive to communicate with the world through music. So I went in the music business. That was my first job out of college. And, uh, oh, go ahead. No, so what in the music business were you doing? I was an agent. I was an agent first at a, at a company called Columbia Artists, and I was at ICM, uh, representing um, mostly young opera singers. So taking singers out of young artist programs like the Metropolitan Opera, San Francisco, Chicago, um, uh, conservatories and music schools. And for me, it was really about you know, how do I help this person live the most fulfilling life they can? You know, I mean, for a lot of my colleagues, I mean, traditionally, as we understand agents, um, it's about how do I really help develop the best career? And totally understood. That's not a, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not meaning to, to, to put any agents down. That's what we do. But for me, I think growing up with my parents, it was, wait, this is the opportunity to really help someone's life. Mm -hmm. So I was representing these young people and helping them develop their their careers and their lives. And um, I realized very early on that my perception of as long as you're doing something successful, uh, successfully, that you love, you'll be happy was wrong. I had clients who were super successful. And I mean, they were everywhere that they could possibly be with their careers. They were all around the world, the whole thing. And they were happy. They had friends and family and or hobbies and or spiritual pursuits and or uh, they were passionate about what they did in a really healthy way. But I also had these, these clients who were incredibly successful, equally successful, but 
but not nearly as successful off stage. And you see, they would be miserable. They'd be depressed. They get calls at three in the morning from Paris or Milan, and them saying, "You know, I'm I'm miserable. I'm depressed. I I miss my family. Or I don't have a family. Or I don't have anything else in my life." And I thought, "Wait a second. There's a real there's a real issue here." And and I'm fascinated by what's happening. So I left, and my career was going really really well. And um, after ten years in the business, I left, and I thought, I need to understand how. What, what the difference is between those people who are successful on stage and off and those people who are successful on stage and really not successful off. And that is what took me towards psychology. Um, at first, I, I, I looked into uh, performance psychology and then I, um, then I went back to school and studied uh, positive psychology. And it's really about bringing those two together. You know, the course at NYU and everything that I do in life is really about how do people realize excellence in their life um, while integrating um, happiness, well-being, um, flourishing on the way towards realizing those levels of expertise, of excellence. Um, because I think that far too often in our culture, it's like, look, it's an either-or question. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be successful? Or do you want to be happy and do you want to be fulfilled? Um, and it's really tricky to put them together, but I think what we're finding is that science is, is showing us that we actually have advantages when we pursue aspects of well-being, whether it's meaning or emo positive emotion or positive relationships or purpose or, or, or even achievement. Uh, and, and that's been thrown to the side. And I think now we're starting to find out that, that it shouldn't be. So mm -hmm. I have this amazing opportunity to work with a thousand students a year. I mean, my clients are wonderful, my coaching clients, but these students, and I look at them and say, listen, the folks that I used to work with and the folks I work with now are calling me when they're like twice your age, literally. They're in their mid-30s and they're going, I'm super successful. I'm really not happy. What do I do? And I can look at these students and say, so I get you young. Let's figure out what habits and routines and practices you can develop right now that can integrate into the rest of your life so that you can pursue whatever you want to pursue at the highest possible level you want to, level you want to pursue it but also do so um, while being happy, by integrating friends, having healthy passions, so on and so forth. So I, I feel incredibly fortunate to uh, be able to, to share, that, share that with them. Yeah, yeah, and I wanna get into to some of those things, but before we do, going back to your story, so you studied, you decided to quit your job as an agent. Were you living yeah. in New York at the time? I was. I moved to New York two days after graduating from college and wow. I've not left since. Cool. Well, I want to so, yeah. talk about that too. I want to talk about yeah. living, living in the city. But So you study these two forms of psychology and were you? they seem very relevant to your work as an agent. So were you planning to take what you learned and go back to being an agent or did you know that you would be a you know peak performance coach at that point? You know, as much as I love, love, love music more than maybe anything else, you know, the other art form, certainly, activity. Um, no, when I left, I, I was pretty sure that I wanted to understand how it works for performers, period. Like, mm -hmm. whether you're performing on a stage, on an athletic field, you know, on a podcast as an interviewer, um, uh, as, a, as an academic, as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a mother, as a father. Like, we're talking about peak performance, I'm really curious about that across the board. It's something I've always been fascinated by. I've always been fascinated by um, super high-level athletes. I, mean, I, played, I played sports growing up, in, into college, um, super high-level musicians, super high-level anythings. 
And I, you know, I'd see the, I'd see one and I'd sort of stop in my tracks and go, that's amazing. Yeah. What's going on there? So, uh, no, I knew, I knew that it would, that it would grow and expand. So tell us a little bit about what that means to be a peak performance coach. And, and I guess I, I would love to know, well, yeah, start there. And then I have follow up questions. So is it similar to being a therapist? How is it different? And how did you use your education that you got in those two forms of psychology? You know, I suppose the, the, the easiest way to, or the simplest way to, to, um, differentiate between the two is that therapists are psychologists who, um, will go back before, uh, before the, they'll go back into the history of someone's life, right? Far more often. So, you know, the traditional, tell me about your mother, tell me about your father. Not that every therapist does this, but really what got you to this point where you, where you've come, uh, where you're having challenges, where you're having issues that, that you need to deal with in order to really be healthy again, to be thriving again. Coaches, um, at least from my perspective, I know there are many, many coaches out there. From my perspective, coaches are about where are you right now and where do you want to get to? You know, it is not within my expertise to be able to diagnose someone's illness, uh, nor is it my expertise to be able to, to really take from their past and be able to help work them work through that. In my expertise, it's about uh, what is it you're striving to achieve um, in, in, any, in any domain, um, and, and what is it, what does success look like to you what does excellence look like to you? Um, and then how do we really get there in a way that also integrates um, uh, fulfillment, uh, integrates well-being into your path? So it's easy for someone to come to a performance coach and say, I want to be the best player on the field. But it's very different than coming and saying, I want to be the best player that I can be. And I also want to live a life that is really fulfilling. So for me, uh, being a strengths-based performance coach is about um, helping someone realize their unique potential starting today and um, helping them train both technically, you know, what does it mean to practice in the simplest uh, um, way uh, that we can, that we can talk about practice, but also what are some psychological aspects that, that what are some positive psychological aspects that, that um, can give one an advantage in that pursuit? Wow, so that sounds like it's really individualized, and I'd love to get into kind of some takeaways that anyone can take away from, you know, parallels you see in your really high-performing people that you've worked with. Are there any, mm-hmm. you know, across-the-board things that they all have in common, the highest performers that you see? Well, you know, look, whether, whether we're talking about someone who is um, performing who's a high performer who's also living a fulfilling life, or we're talking about a very high performer who's not living a fulfilling life, um, hard work is always there. There is, you know, no matter how talented one thinks, I sort of use the air quotes with talented, or smart uh, someone might be, in order to really get to the top of their game, it's about hard work. Uh, So that's always a consistent. Um, And I'd... You know, I'd say that th- there's a mode of kind of deliberate practice made popular by um, Malcolm Gladwell and Outliers, but really, uh, but really discovered, researched by Anders Ericsson of Florida State, that is a very specific way of practicing. It involves having a mentor and, a, and or a teacher. It involves having the proper equipment. It involves a certain kind of focus. It involves setting goals that, that are... Um, not just goals like in five years I want to be doing X, but in 30 minutes I want to be doing X. 
So, for example, um, if you're a runner, it's not about how fast you're going to run the next 10 miles. It's about where exactly are your knees as you're running and what is your coach telling you you need to be doing in real time. If you're a musician, it's not playing through a whole piece. It's just working on your trills. Let's say you're a pianist. Trills, 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 trills. You're a flutist. Long tone, long tone, long tone. And really being able to work on nothing but that. So when you walk away from your practice session, or at least that portion of your practice session, you can say, I have improved. You know, it's constantly challenging oneself, um, which can be really hard uh, because you are, it's what I call um, uh, forced evolution. You're pushing yourself further than you would, than you would be able, than you would be pushing yourself without that kind of focus. So incredibly intense, hard work with very specific goals and mentors around are consistent throughout. Now, when you start looking, when we start looking at people who are, who, you know, who split, right? All the, everyone's doing that, whether they are athletes, musicians, doctors, lawyers, podcasts, podcast producers, um, just as I'm sure you, you, you've looked around and seen other folks who the exemplars for you who do great podcasts, who do you really, you really look up to, um, who do you look to emulate, so on and so forth. Um, once you get past those specifics, I think then we can really start talking about what differentiates the people who do that in a healthy way from people who do it in a less than healthy way. And it's not to say that you have to be healthy by any means to be successful. I mean, let's look at Steve Jobs, you know, incredibly successful guy, the happiest guy in the world, not so much. Living a fulfilling life, questionable. Um, Kanye, like textbook, right? So um, not necessarily, I mean, incredibly successful. Look, when you have your own line of shoes, you're successful. But is it the life that you'd wish for your kid? And that's sort of, that's how I often put it, because for many people, it's not. No matter how successful, quote unquote, they are, it's not the life they want to live. But then you look at other folks, um, compare Steve Jobs to someone like uh, Richard Branson, um, who puts family first, he puts positive emotions first, he puts meaning uh, way up there. And you look at someone who's both successful and and healthy. You look at um, Maya Angelou, we look at Ellen DeGeneres, like these people who have integrated really healthy routine, rituals and, and, um, uh, and people, relationships into their life, and that's that's been essential for them. And you start to see a really sharp divide between the two. So everyone I've named, Worked incredibly hard, incredibly specifically for a long time, um, but not everyone there was healthy, and I think that that's that's where it starts to get really interesting, at least, at least for me. Yeah, have you read Elizabeth <laughs> Gilbert's book, Big Magic? Not yet. It's a yet. it's a good one, and I think you'd like it. She talks a lot about creativity, and she talks about kind. Of, it reminds me of what you're talking about here, and how very highly creative people especially in the past, you know, there's that whole thing. I think it's, um, when people are 28, like how Amy Winehouse and all these, um, people happen to die at that specific age who were like super successful and creative. And sure. she talked about that and she talked about, you know, how basically exactly what you're saying about how there's a different way to do it. There's a different, you don't have to be the starving artist and to feel sad to make good work there there are people who do that and that's one way to do it but mm -hmm. you can also have tremendous success and be happy which i think is what what your work really explores yes exactly exactly and i you know and i think that you know that 
I hesitate to say the myth, but the myth of the depressed artist mm-hmm. um, is, is a really powerful one, and it, it deserves to be explored. It's, you know, when we see it, I always feel for those artists who think, well, clearly I need to be that way if I am going to be successful. And there are so many role models, as you pointed out, you know, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, all those people. Mm-hmm. Um, Amy Winehouse, like you said. Um, but, and, I, and, so, and look, and for certain people, to be clear, you know, I, I can't sit here and say, everybody can thrive in the same way. That would be unfair. And there are certainly people out there who, you know, whether it's, uh, whether they're dealing with mental illness of some sort, um, even some, you know, something like depression, uh, that they're getting it out. They're communicating with the world through their, through that art form. For them, that might have been right. Now, do they have to die at that age to get there? That's arguable. You know, it's questionable. Um, but I certainly, you know, there's certainly, I, I guess the way I put it is that myth of the suffering, depressed, tragic artist is larger than, than reality itself. Yes, there are exemplars out there of that, but there's so many people we don't talk about who are able to thrive on stage and off. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked about some of those routines and rituals and, and we talk a lot about routines and things that make you feel okay in the world and things that, you know, help you to be at your best on this podcast. So I would love, you know, some of the ones that you offer your class at, at NYU and, and you're the people that you work with as, as a coach and, or let's table that question. Actually, let's go back, talk, tell us before you tell us what you say in this class about this mm-hmm. class and, and how it came to be. It's called the science of happiness. Yes. And I heard that it's the most popular elective class at NYU. So tell us a little bit about how that that came to be and, and why you think it's so popular. First of well, all. Well, you know, it came to be because my, my, my co-instructor and I, um, he's also my co-author and one of my best friends, uh, Alan Schlechter, um, he was teaching it a year before I got there. Alan's an adolescent psychiatrist who's um, one of the directors at um, Adolescent Psychiatry at Bellevue and here in New York. And Alan was teaching this course called The Science of Happiness. We were introduced by uh, a very close friend. And what was supposed to be like a half an hour conversation turned into like a three hour conversation. At the end of which he said, you should come in and catch the class. And I did. And I went in and I realized, you know, Alan was teaching what he knew. Alan was teaching most of most of what Alan was teaching was uh, these are the issues that are going to face you in college that are going to be obstacles to your happiness, stress anxiety, depression, all spot on. And this is how you deal with them. And then there was a little bit, say 10, 15% of it was, now, here are the opportunities in college. Positive emotions, relationships, meaning, purpose, achievement, um, choice, willpower, passion, um, all these things. And after the class, I went up, we were talking, and he said, I said, it's a great class, man. You know. Honestly, I'm super biased, but I would, I would change the ratio from 80-20 to at least closer to 50-50. That is to say, yes, every student's going to have obstacles, and we absolutely need to address them. Every per- person in the world has obstacles uh, to, to, to thriving, and they need to be addressed. But it also has to be about the opportunities. So Alan was amazing, and he said, great, let's do it. And we basically tore up the syllabus and... Uh, rewrote so much of it so that it really ended up now being about 70-30, 70% 70 
how to thrive, what the opportunities are to thriving, and 30%, what are the barriers to thriving? Um, it wouldn't be realistic if we didn't take those on. So that's how it came to be. Now, we, you know, when I started teaching with Alan, um, we had, I wanna say, almost um, had about 175 students, and now we have almost 500 students. Uh, I think that it's, to address the second part of your question, I think it's, it's, it's this rise in popularity is for a number of reasons. Um, it has always been really important. Well, let's say, let's, let's start by saying the title, right? Who doesn't want to be happy? So when, when I tell people out there what I do, the, the course I teach, they can be literally, I'm talking to high school students or I'm talking to octogenarians. And every single one goes, oh, man, I totally have to take that class, right? I really want to understand what happiness is, too, and how to, how to realize what happiness is. So I think a lot of students, well, you know, why wouldn't you want to take that, that course? Um, Alan and I have always put a huge um, emphasis on really relaying science, solid, empirical uh, science in a way that's super accessible and actionable. And I think that that word of mouth got around really quickly. That is to say, you know, when I got there, for example, he would have a slide that talked about optimism and how optimism affected people who had their second heart attack, whether they lived or if they were pessimistic, the rate at which they died. There was a, there was a slide about the rates of divorce among people who were um, optimistic versus pessimistic. And, you know, if you say that to a to a classroom full of 18 and 23 year olds they glaze over and why wouldn't they because no one had no one's even close to having a heart attack yeah and you know no one's been married so you look at them and you go wait cut these slides let's talk about your gpas what happens when you're optimistic versus pessimistic let's talk about your social experiences let's talk about dating let's talk about um what happens directly after college your job interviews and they're like whoa you're talking to me you know so i think that's been tremendously helpful um you know, there's a joke it's sort of a um, oh, it's a joke in, in psychology, which is really, look, every study that everyone does is about college sophomores because they're cheap and plentiful. So, like, why does it have – why do any of these studies have to do with anyone else? Well, that's an overstatement. But, like, that's perfect for us because so many of our students are – we're all college students. So all of our studies are like, these are about you, you guys. This is about you and meaning and you and emotion and you and optimism and you and willpower. So we can look at them and go – this is all about you. And finally, most of our assignments are experiential. So instead of saying, go read these 10 books and these 10 research papers and write about it, which we, of course, do a couple times a semester, every week the assignment is go use your signature strengths in new ways for the next five days and write a two-page paper about that. Go and keep a journal for the next uh, week Every night, write down three things that you're grateful for and then write a two-page paper about your experience so that the students can go through and really experience each of these empirically sound interventions and come back and go either, that was awesome, I totally had a great week and I, I want to do this forever, or say, this one kind of didn't work for me, which is absolutely fine because that's science. Not everything's going to work for everybody, but at least they get the chance to walk through them and figure out what's going to work for them. So by the end of the semester, they have something that they can do um, that they will continue. And I can't tell you how often we get students coming back to us um, either after a semester or after four years or after longer and saying, you know, I still do that thing from class and it's great. So I think, I think those three things have really helped. Oh, that's great. I, yeah. I love that that's 
available. I wish I would have had that in college. <laughs> you know what? Thank you for saying that because what we always say is this is the course we wish we had in college. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and this is the this is the book we wish we had in college. Like, and, and this is the other thing. Students today, like, I mean, I don't want to sound old, like student, you know, kids these days, but you know the the rates of depression and anxiety and stress and other issues are skyrocketing for college students and really for high school students too. So I think more than ever, they're like, wait, I'm in college and I'm really not enjoying it and I'm way too stressed out or I'm way too miserable. Um, I need to figure something out here. And so I think that's the reason why they've reached out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What yeah. are what are maybe one or two tips or routines? You mentioned gratitude journaling and you mentioned a couple yeah. But that you could give the people listening. We have college students and we have lots of people in their 20s like me sure. and 30s yeah. and 40s. And you know, what are just a couple things, you know, maybe other than gratitude journaling that you think help with the mindset of making someone a peak performer in whatever their field is? Sure. Or just well, being you a know, person. No, I, I think that's it. Being a peak person yeah, um, exactly. is a great start. It's a great start. Um, signature strengths, uh, are a terrific, a terrific tool. Um, I would recommend that signature, signature strengths are, are kind of, they're pathways to how we can reach, uh, how we can be engaged in what we're doing more often that are not necessarily topic specific. So what I'd say to listeners is go to the VIA website. It's values in action. So VIA, um, website and take the free assessment for the VIA strengths test. Um, there are 24 different strengths. They range from love to bravery to justice to appreciation of beauty and mastery uh, to gratitude, um, humility, self-control. And what, what research has been showing is that consistently, overwhelmingly almost, uh, people who use their signature strengths more often find themselves more, more engaged in the work that they do, and they find themselves uh, with higher levels of positive emotion. Um, so when you find that, let's say, a signature strength for you might be appreciation of beauty and mastery or excellence, um, looking for people who you really look up to consistently, watching movies that have exemplars of people who, um, what, let me back up and say, um, Go to a museum. Spend time listening to music. Um, go out and watch, see, look at a sunset. Watch a wonderful film. Do something in your life that allows you to really appreciate the beauty and mastery that, as a strength for you, is clearly something that helps you engage. Um, if it's bravery, go out and do something that, that you know is pushing your boundary. If you're a student, ask that question in class that you're a little nervous to ask. Because when you do, you'll find yourself more deeply engaged. You'll find yourself operating at a higher level. If you are, um, if it's not in the classroom, do it with uh, some sort of political or social movement. Get out there and get involved because that involves bravery. If it's justice, you can do the same thing. So when we figure out what our signature strengths are, it's a chance to really become engaged. Uh, you know, I had a student who, a couple of years ago, uh, took the assessment and her boyfriend took the assessment and she wanted to give him a really wonderful birthday uh, present. So uh, she did a strengths date where she found out that his number one strength is appreciation of beauty. And uh, so she took him to a really wonderful uh, breakfast at a lovely restaurant. They took a really nice walk through Central Park. 
They went to the Met Museum and looked at art all day, and then they watched the sunset from the roof. He was like, this is the best date I've ever had. Mm. Um, her number one strength was love and capacity to be loved. And she had an amazing uh, day, too, because it was all about giving to him, you know, loving him. So even if it's something like that, using your signature strengths in new ways and doing it consistently can be a, a wonderful way to elevate your level of engagement, positive emotions, and many, many other things as well. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So it's a yeah. similar, is it similar to Myers-Briggs kind of? It's like a personality test situation, but it focuses on the positive aspects of you? So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, one of the reasons why we tend to go with something like Zia is because it has such strong empirical data, right? So um, Myers-Briggs is a private company. You know, I know people, a lot of people really love that assessment and it works beautifully for them. This is nice because it gives, you, it gives you more than 20 options of strengths. It has all that scientific data behind it. Um, and yes, in many ways it is about what are, your, what, are, what are your personal values and strengths that help you to be your best. You know, it's not about weaknesses, it's about strengths. So um, it's consistently about how do you, uh, how do you operate at your, at your very, very best. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I really, really love that. I think I can feel, speaking personally, very much like I'm not, and I've talked about this like a broken record on this podcast, but like I'm not <laughs> the best at anything. Like I'm okay at a bunch of things, like a master of right. none. And... I'm going to take this right after we hang up because I feel like it will, you know, I think it's not productive for me to focus on the lack of, yeah, I'm not the best podcaster. I'm not the best at, you know, maybe anything, but I'm, but I'm doing okay, you know, and I think it's easy to focus on comparison or focus on, you know, the areas of lack and, that's just not productive. So I, I love, I love this and I'm, I'm excited that you've shared it. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you know, playing off what you just shared and thank you for sharing that, you know, n no one starts out as the best podcaster. No one in the world has ever started out as the best podcaster. No one in the world has ever started out as the best anything, but one might argue that, um, by leaning on your strengths, let's say your strength is curiosity. By appreciating your strength of curiosity and, go, and knowing, wait, I'm still learning about, I'm, st I'm, I'm, I'm on a constant quest to be the best podcaster I can be, but I love, when, I love the fact that I can ask these questions of people, that I can understand people, right? Maybe if one of your strengths is, is um, social justice, right? Then it's, you get the opportunity to share insights from other people um, with the rest of the world that can change the world in a certain way. So I think appreciating the strength that you'll find in your assessment will say, you know, I lead through curiosity. I lead through justice. I lead through um, love of learning, so on and so forth. And you can appreciate that whether you're uh, podcasting or whether you're walking down the street. Yeah. You know, mm. and that's an incredibly powerful thing. You know, for, for the other folks out there, I'll tell you a quick story, if I, if I may. Yeah, of course, please. Um, which is, you know, I had a client I was working with who was a lawyer, very successful, general counsel, of a um, of a very successful company, and he came to me after he, after right after he quit, and he said, "I, I can't do it anymore. Like I, I need to figure out what I'm going to do, but it can't be that." And you know the process that we that we went through was, you know, we talked about what your floor of your salary was. We talked about cities that he could live in, so we sort of got the basic parameters. 
And we absolutely talked about his skills. But then we talked about his strengths. His strengths were wisdom, humor, um, love of learning, teamwork. And um, every interview he went on, every conversation he had, every time he had drinks, every time he had a meal, every time he had anything, he would go back to his little moleskin and rate everything, including his strengths. So he got six interviews into a huge company to be their general counsel. The money was through the roof. And, you know, it was an amazing opportunity. But he was like, I'm six interviews in. No one's cracked a smile. So there goes humor out the door. You know, it's like they want me to oversee like 300 lawyers, but that doesn't help me learn anything new. Like I'd rather learn how to, you know, make pants or brew beer, like anything else. And um, so he, he and it didn't work. So he kept ra- he kept raiding all these companies. And in the end, he had two job offers. One was from what would have been a dream job for him five years ago, and the other was from a startup. It was like they barely hit the floor of my salary. Um, but man, they are funny. It's a super small company, so they want me to wear all these different hats. Meaning his love of learning was you know was, you know was through the roof. And they were always asking him for his thoughts on things. Thus his wisdom was was playing in. Um, and so, and his teamwork, because they were a small organization, they really wanted everyone to work together, was, was again, like, fantastic. So he ended up going with the startup instead of the big company, because it just, the strengths were too high for him. And we kept meeting, less often, we kept meeting, and every time he'd say, you know, this is, every morning I get up and I can't wait to go to work. I look forward to working with the folks. I look forward to learning new things. I look forward to, to weighing in on things, all the things that were his strengths. And the company grew from when he joined 10 people to over 1,000 people. And he called me um, about it nine months ago and he said, hey, have you seen, have you seen the, um, the business page today? And I said, I haven't. So you should look. And it was his company, which was Jet.com, uh, had been bought out by Walmart for $3.5 billion. And we had dinner the next week. And it was interesting because he said, you know, all the phone calls I've gotten, all the congratulations I've gotten, the emails, so on and so forth, the consistent questions have been, A, when are you going to retire? And B, what island are you going to buy? And he looked at me and he said, you know what, man, this job has been so wonderful that I, it wasn't ever about the money. And I'm not buying an island, I'm not retiring. I'm just stoked that I know we're going to be in business for a lot longer because I can keep working with these people, doing great things, doing great work, an environment that's really awesome. You know, that's what it is about strengths is they allow us to be engaged and look forward to our work every day, whether we are podcasting, brewing, making pants, you know, or flipping burgers. Um, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about them. Yeah. So, you know, so so your podcasting career enhanced by strengths, it's clearly it's already going well. It'll only theoretically um, be that much better. Well, thank you, Dan, first of all. Well, my, my um, pleasure. Yeah, that I'm really. I wish I knew my strengths so I could tell you them right now. But I <laughs> we can we can have that conversation later. Yeah, maybe, I will, maybe it's part two, or maybe it's just you and me have a coffee. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit more about positive psychology and mm-hmm. how it works. I think people like myself understand that thinking positively is productive and important and just feels better. But I would love to know more of the science behind it and why and you know maybe just start by defining positive psychology and, and how we can use it in our lives. Sure. So let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning of psychology. Let me give you the, the, the quick primer. 
Okay. Earliest early, earliest Department of Psychology uh, uh, worldwide. One of the earliest was Harvard University. Um, and if you look back in the 1870s, 1880s, the things they were studying at Harvard University back then, and really all the way through the 1940s, were um, the functioning of the human mind. Now, that could be um, the functioning of the human mind when it was um, dealing with illness or anxiety or stress or depression um, or basically anything that would take you below, let's say, zero, right? Um, below, below that set point. But psychology was also looking at people who thrived. What you know? What was the psycho- What was what made up a good marriage? What about what about human beings who were achieving on a particularly high level? What about parents who were doing really well or kids who were doing really well? Um, they were looking at um, people who were succeeding in school, right? So until the 1940s, psychology was really what hap- what's going on in your in your mind when you are suffering, but also what's going on in your mind when you're thriving. And in the 40s, World War II came, and we had this huge wave of soldiers dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder and their families uh, as a result dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And 90-plus percent of the funding shifts, understandably, to how do we help people who are suffering because so many people are. And that's, that really was what psychology became. Um, from the 1940s uh, through uh, the 1990s. And we got to know what those things were, what those issues and challenges were really, really well, which is important. But we forgot what it meant to thrive. We forgot what it meant to understand how people live fulfilling lives, how they find well-being. And in 19, I mean, as an example, between 1960 and 1999, I believe, um, the ratio of negatively oriented studies in psychology to positively was about 21 to 1. So like 45,000 studies on depression, about 400 studies on joy, right? So 1999, Martin Seligman comes along. He becomes, he, he becomes president of the American Psychological Association. Here's this man who really made his name on studying depression, and he had turned it around, and he thought, wait a second, if people can learn to be depressed, which is what he uncovered, um, and he does so much research on, then can't, why can't they learn to be hopeful? Why can't they learn to be happy? And he had turned that research around and be, uh, upon becoming president of the APA said, look, and I quote, um, psychology is half-baked. We have baked the part about illness. We have baked the part about um, suffering. But we haven't baked the part about, about what makes life worth living. And so... Uh, what he really did was bring together these disparate researchers who were in very prestigious places around the country. Um, folks like um, uh, Barbara Fredrickson, who was then at U- University of um, North Carolina, studying positive emotions. And uh, Chris Peterson, who was studying character strengths and relationships at University of Michigan. Um, Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote the book Flow, who was at the University of Chicago at the time. He was studying engagement um, and, and, and flow phenomenon. And he said, Let's start studying these for real and let's give it the same kind of empirical scientific rigor that we have with all of the all of the other psychological challenges and issues that we have for so long. So, you know, you're absolutely right when you say we know that, you know, when I say we, I say you and me and everyone else who's listening knows they'd rather be happy than sad. We know that when we think positively, there's something that's happening when we're optimistic. There's something different. 
But what positive psychology did was to really take those those things, those ideas, which are as old as we can we can go back to Aristotle and Plato and and Confucius. We they knew it too. But what positive psychology does is it takes it and puts it under the empirical lens of science and says, okay, when does a smile help? When does a smile not help? You know, can you fake it until you make it? Um, what happens with relationships? What happens when you spend time with someone who has more willpower? What does willpower do? How does willpower work? How does choice work? How does it affect um, our day-to-day lives? What is meaning? How can we get more of it? What are ways that we can recommend, that we, um, that we can suggest to people um, uh, that will lead them toward uh, more engagement? Um, and rather than just knowing that it works some of the time, um, getting a sense of when it works and for whom it works and for whom it doesn't work. Um, you know, you tell, you, you tell someone who's, you know, who's having a perfectly okay day, you know, to smile. There's a big difference between that and someone who's truly depressed um, and the effect that it has on them. Because someone who's really dealing with mental illness, um, like depression, it actually will put them in a worse place. So getting a sense of what works, when it works, under, under a real um, empirical lens, that's what positive psychology is. And to be honest with you, Katie, at the end of the day, we don't want there to be a positive psychology. I say we as in the community. From, for many of us in the community, we just want it to be psychology. Yeah. But we want it to be psychology that, affect, that looks at both illness and thriving. And hopefully, I, th- I think we're on our way there. But for right now, because it is a renewed look at this in science, it has that, it has that name. Oh, that's fascinating. So how can it be applied on a practical level in, in people's lives or in, you know, in, in my life listening? Like what is, what is something to kind of be aware of? Is it managing your thoughts and um, orienting them towards the positive as much as you can? Or like what is, what is it day-to-day right. life? So, you know, there, and this goes back to the idea of how unique everyone is. Right. I mean, if we want if, if we say it's going to be positive as often as we can, well, there are times when being positive isn't necessarily the best thing. So how do you manage for that? I mean, you're asking a great question. I think, you know, there are a number of ways that I'd start off with that, that are that are super accessible. The and, and that would begin with relationships, um, you know, in in college, uh, the trends we've seen over the past 40 years is that depression and stress are up but guess what else is down it's the amount of time that people spend with their friends and if you look at if you look at the two directions they almost mirror each other that is to say you know a lot of students out there and i would say a lot of listeners out there uh, 20 somethings and 30 somethings and 40 somethings the first thing that we do when we get stressed out at work or at school or at home is we run off to be by ourselves Right. So my students will say, when I get stressed out, I run to the library or I hide under the covers with like a pint of Ben and Jerry's and I don't talk to anybody. And um, what we will say in our class is that running away from friends during times of stress is like running away from driving away from the hospital when your appendix is about to burst. Mm. What you need more than anything is to go and talk to those friends that you have and say, hey, I'm having a rough day. You know, even if it's just yeah, I bombed a test or. Um, I'm having a rough day at work or reaching out to a friend saying my partner and I just were having some issues. Um, most people will hide, many people will hide from that. But when we turn to friends, um, there, 
it's far more helpful than we understand. It decreases our stress. It allows us to begin talking about those challenges and not let them boil up. It has so many different knock-on effects that are profoundly important that cultivating relationships in our life um, might be the number one thing that I would say. Make make time for those relationships. Um, even, if, even though you're telling yourself, I don't have any time. I'm too busy. Too busy at work. I'm too busy doing this. Too busy doing that. Making time for relationships is absolutely key. Right? Even if you put it in your schedule to say, you know what? I'm putting two coffees a week in my schedule with a buddy, or I'm going to make these phone calls at these times, or I'm going to send out three emails every morning to friends saying, hey, I've just been thinking about you. I hope everything's going well. You know, just maintain those relationships seems to, becoming, seems to be increasingly challenging, but is more essential than ever. Yeah, right? that's really, really great advice. It's like yeah. the thing you said about, you know, it's the last thing that we want to do, but it's the thing that we need to do. I completely yeah. relate to, and I've seen that that in my life. Like when I'm feeling sad or like feel melancholy in some way, I want to be alone and disengage. But when I, you know, as someone who is extroverted and introverted, and you know, we all get our energy a little bit of both. I think sure. the times when I do put myself around people when I don't feel like it, I'm never sad that I did. I'm always right happy that I did there, there you go it's such an interesting, interesting thing right but yet you forget we all forget right. you know we get to that place and we're like no no they wouldn't want to talk to me they're just going to be I'm going to bum them out or you know I'm going to bring them down and they're not going to hang out with me again and right. that is never the case they love you you know yeah. they care for you well people like seeing right? each other's vulnerability I think and yeah yeah that's really cool right. it certainly brings them closer and and think about and, and also think about what you're getting what you're, no, I shouldn't say getting, what you're experiencing in those relationships when they're good, right? I mean, when you have good news, what's the first thing you want to do? Right. You want right? to be around want, people, call people. Exactly. Yeah. You want to share it with them. So, you know, in some studies, we found that when people share good news with friends, when those friends respond in active and constructive ways. So let's say, Katie, you were... Um, you shared a piece of really good news. What's what's something that's happened to you recently that that you're really happy about or proud of that you, you'd share? Oh, this is nice. I'm moving to New York in June. You are. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank that's you. That's fantastic. Thank Wait, you. Wait. So how did how did that come about? I made a choice and I'm putting it in motion. I've never lived out of the Midwest and it's happening and I'm nervous, but yeah. <laughs> that is wonderful. Wait. So so thank you. When. The moment you decided, can you just tell me about about that when you sort of realized this is going to happen? Oh yeah, I like called. I text. I think I sent like a mass text to all of my friends in New York, and I was like, "It's actually happening. It's approved. <laughs> I'm coming. Like, help me find an apartment." Nice. And how did that, and how did that feel when you hit send? Amazing. So many right. party emojis. <laughs> there you go. Right. Yeah. See this is see this is it. So we have actually that's called active constructive responding. When you share when when you share good news with me. Have I asked you a question or two about what it felt like for you and tell me more about it? It's like you're reliving it. Yeah. So you get the benefits of reliving something wonderful again. And some studies will show that that part of sharing it with someone when they respond to you that way is even more wonderful than the actual event itself. Oh, my gosh. Right? Totally. And right? th- this, yeah. is a, this is an interesting conversation to, to loop this into social media because I, as soon as you were talking about that, I, when you said you get to relive it again – when something good happens to me or yeah something that feels good or interesting i 
love to call my mom and tell her and I didn't really even know why because a lot of times her reaction isn't even you know the Uh thing that I'm excited about she has no like she doesn't really you know she's not as into podcasts as I am or she's not as into my friends as I am or the the weird like apartment thing and but I understand it's not about her it's about me and it's about what that I get to relive it and I think it's the same thing for social media I like to share my life and take photos and share them on social media because you know and I'm sure this is like there's a lot of layers to this but one is I get to relive it again and I get to involve more people into it you know if I had got a great haircut and that was a really fun thing (laughs) if I take a photo of it and post it like I did yesterday, then I get to talk to other people about it and relive that fun experience that I had at the salon again, which is like the silliest example or a vacation or whatever. Well, see, that's that's what I think. That's a great example because you're using you're, you're using an example that doesn't have to be. I'm moving to New York. It's I got a great haircut yesterday, and you know, not everyone moves to New York every day, right. but people get haircuts on a regular basis, or something cool happens to them on a regular basis, like. I saw something really neat in the street today. I saw someone really kind do something to somebody else, or I had a great conversation. And just sharing that can be incredibly impactful. You also bring up a really interesting point in that it's social media versus live. And this is, I'll loop positive psychology back in to say, you know, one of the things we're studying right now is, you know, my colleagues who are studying, so what's the difference? Is there a difference between sharing good news on Facebook or Instagram or any social media versus sharing good news in person? There absolutely is, but we don't know exactly what it is yet. We're still studying it, mm-hmm. you know? You know, so that's that can be interesting. So I, you know, so in a way, you want to say, Katie, something really awesome just happened to you. Absolutely, share it on social media. But we also might find that you should call someone too, or you should go see a friend because we know when you see someone eye to eye and you share good news, something really, something even more deep, uh, and and uh, happens in, in that in that in that uh, engagement. So um, we don't know yet. We're looking yeah. at that, but we do know exactly as you've experienced. That even sharing something as as seemingly seemingly routine as I got a great haircut um, can really elevate our day far more than we give it credit for being able to. Right. Yeah. And another thing I I thought about when you talked about social media is my experience is I'm on Instagram and Snapchat way more when I'm lonely and I'm having a shitty day than when I'm having a great day and I'm around people and I'm feeling amazing. I don't. Right. I, the story would be better that day because it's more interesting and I'm doing more things, but it's the last thing I want to do. But when I'm lonely or sad, I'm, you know, if I'm Instagramming a lot, like everyone come over and check on me because that means I'm like probably sad. <laughs> right. Oh, see, there you go. And, and that, that I think comes back to the, again, your, your question about the science of, because, um, because everyone's going to be different. As yeah. you, you mentioned, the extrovert introvert thing. For an introvert, that might be a great day to say, you know what? I'm reaching out in the way that I reach out. For an extrovert like yourself, that might be a sign that it's you're not really operating in the best possible place. Because for you, you're going to be talking to people, you're going to be around people, you know. And that's what we've seen from the introvert studies on introverts is that um, they prefer, often prefer to write. They often prefer to post images. Um, and so, and so, you're absolutely right. It's it, 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 for you you know when you're thriving versus when you might be struggling a bit. Yeah. I don't know, though. I think – I don't know. I think I'm, like, right on the cusp because I need to be around people, but I also – I am a writer and I am – I think I'm 
must be right in the middle, but this is this part's getting self-serving. I want to know more <laughs> about your thoughts on on social media when it comes to positive psychology or just your thoughts on social media in general. You know, it's a great question and I and I hesitate only because the research is still in play. You know, there's um there's some there's some research coming out that's really interesting. There's a book issued by uh, Superbook that just came out called Irresistible by Adam Alter um, at NYU, who uh, really talks about technology and addiction. Yeah, in a way. I just heard him on Fresh Air. It was great. Yeah, Br- brilliant guy, really mm-hmm. good writer. And so that those are the things we're starting to see come out that are telling us, well, informing us about what social media can do. Uh, um, what is her name? Turkle, I believe is her name. Um, at, uh, at MIT has been studying this for a while. And, and so, for, so let me give you an example. And this is more technology than social media, but Sherry Turkle, that's right, at MIT. Um, if you are sitting with your family at the table having dinner, the conversation that you have is when your phone is somewhere in sight, on the table, on the kitchen counter, anywhere in sight, is different than if your phone is out of sight. Because when the phone is in sight, uh, the conversation tends to be a bit shallower, a bit simpler. Um, And it's really interesting to know that just having that present can make such a big difference. Think about um, a date, you know? If you're on a date, your phone's out, the conversation's gonna be different than if your phone's in your purse or in your pocket. Because it's always there, it's temptation. To either Google something, or the phone call you get, or the text you get, or something else. Mm. So, I mean, I guess I think about social media, and this is not, this is not rooted in any kind of science. I think about social media this way. Um, we have spent tens of thousands of years communicating in one way only, and that was face-to-face. Um, and only in the past, you know, a couple thousands of years have we started to send le- written letters. But not until the last... You know, and 100 years ago, well, 150 years ago, we got on the phone. But still, most of our communication until 20 years ago when cell phones really got big was face-to-face. Um, and at least we could hear the voice. All of a sudden, there's no voice and there's no face. And so our, we have not evolved to be able to, um, to, to really have that depth of engagement the same way. So I think social media is great in many, 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 many ways. It allows us to do what we're doing right now. It allows us to share information that's everyday information that says, hey, I was hanging out with my friends, or hey, I got a great haircut. Um, I, and this, again, this is not uh, scientifically based, but, but I think there's a line where we start, it starts to be more of a barrier than um, an opportunity. When we start to share things that we really that would be so wonderful to share in person or to share on, you know, with our, with uh, hearing someone else's voice, we start sharing it out uh, in a different way. Are we losing terrific opportunity to nurture our well-being? You know, um, there's a, there's a funny little clip, uh, Aziz Ansari talking about texting. He's on a date. He meets a girl and they're texting and, um, he's like, you know, everyone texts like why you, if anyone, if the phone rings, he says, you know, why are you calling me? Just text me. You know, it's like gotten to the point where people don't call each other very much mm-hmm. anymore. So I think, you know, we're missing some of these opportunities to connect, which are incredibly important. So my thought, as long as we use social media 
in a in, um, in a way that is beneficial for us, that is not the only way that we communicate. Wonderful. It's the challenges it ca- that that it brings when we start to use it too much, yeah. and in ways that isn't so wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like moderation in in all things. It is absolutely no question. But I'd also add that the addictive qualities of technology, right? As, as I think that Adam as, as Adam Alter talks about, um, are far greater than we realize. Mm, yeah. You know, it's like like the missing limb syndrome. I mean, how many times do you check? How many times do any of us check our phone every day? There's yeah. an app called Moment. It tells you tracks how long you spent on your phone, how many times you picked it up. I mean, if you've ever left your phone at home, how often have you reached for it in your yeah. pocket anyway? Right? Oh yeah. You know. Yeah, no. So I'm, we're we're all addicts. It's crazy, yeah. and that I I will put the the link to his book because um, that episode of Fresh Air with Terry Gross when he was on, like I've been telling everyone about because it was it was yeah. really eye opening. Yeah. Um, I want to get back to positive psychology briefly and talk about sure. negative self talk. It's something that, you know, I think about a lot and I'm so aware that our thoughts become things and our thoughts are so powerful and the way that we feel and then therefore the actions that we take and then mm-hmm. therefore our lives. But I still have this innate sense, you know, that I'm not good enough or I'm not smart enough or I'm not pretty enough or I'm not whatever enough that's just there. But I know it's so negative and not productive can you talk about that from a psychological perspective and then how to shift out of that sure so you know what a lot of us get caught up in but every single let me say a lot of us every single one of us one could argue um has something called a thinking trap and that thinking trap could be something like i'm not good enough that thinking trap could be something like um, uh, when someone does something that's not necessarily uh, – that's, that's negative, you assume that it's your fault, right? Personalizing. It could be catastrophizing. Like when we believe the only possible outcome is the worst thing imaginable, right? Mind reading. We think that we know what other people are thinking and we assume that it's the worst thing. So as they go through these, um, my bet is that everyone out there who's listening – is going to relate to one or two or five of them, right? How often you think the trap would be jumping to conclusions, right? So it's a broad conclusion based on one single event or an inconclusive piece of evidence. Like, I'm not good enough. Why? Because the podcast that I did last week wasn't so great. Wait, that's one podcast. Hold on one second. So how do we argue against them? So I'd say when it comes to these thinking traps, the first, um, the first step is to identify them and know which ones you tend to go to. We all tend to go, well, take that back. If you're listening, which of them do you tend to go to as an individual? Um, Are you personalizing? Are you catastrophizing? Uh, Is it all or nothing black or white thinking? And once you can identify it, you're far more likely to spot it. So for you, what was the example you used before? I'm not, was it I'm not good enough? I'm not smart enough? Yeah, just a general, like, I I go through phases of feeling like I'm not all of, I can just umbrella say not enough in Mm -hmm. all of those areas or get specific. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So, so part of what you can do is ask yourself a question, right? Something like, um, if it's, 
if it's uh, perfect, right? If using a word like perfect or failure or all or nothing, right? So ask, how can I look at this from a pro-con perspective? Like, what are the things that I think I might not be good at? But really, what are the things that I know I am good at? When in the past have I been uh, successful at this? When have I known that I've done a good job in this? And start to look for those times in, in our life when we have been successful in that capacity. You know, one of the things that is essential to athletes who are uh, consistently successful is it's, it's sort of a, it's a little sort of saying, which is you have a, you have a, <laughs> excuse me, you have a uh, short memory for losses and you have a long memory for victories. Right? That is to say, if someone strikes out, a baseball player strikes out of the plate, if they dwell on that, then the odds of them striking out again are, are better than they would if they leave it behind them and they think about, okay, that's done. Let me think about the time when I got a good hit. Let me think about a time when I was feeling strong. You know, what happened then? Because once you start to think through those, it's not just positive thinking, just thinking I can, I can, I can. It's thinking realistically, wait a second, I've hit a home run off this guy before. Wait a second, I have made these plays before. So when we get down on ourselves, it's often our thinking about the something that we that didn't go well and overgeneralizing it, right? So what we need to do or what, what can be beneficial is think about when times did go well. Yeah. When did we feel strong? When did we feel smart? When were we, when were we successful? And not just thinking I can be, but what did I do? What was I doing when that went well? Wait, maybe, I, you know, if you're a student in the classroom, maybe I studied more for that test last time. Maybe I studied with other people last time. Maybe it was um, a course that I was really interested in. So it's a sign that I should really be taking courses that I find super engaging instead of taking those courses that I'm really not that interested in. Maybe it's a sign for me. Um, and in the case that, that you brought up is let me think about those times when I felt really good. Yeah. What specifically was happening? And how can I emulate that behavior again? Did yeah. I prep more for the podcast? Was it, you know, maybe, it, and, and, you know, maybe it's not you, Katie. Maybe it's your guest. <laughs> maybe you just happened to find a guest you didn't jibe with. Nothing against your guest. But maybe it's just someone who just didn't quite fit your style. You know what? That happens. No one bats a thousand. Right. Right. right? So, so figuring out al- alternate ideas um, based on reality can get you back into the swing. Yeah. What about dealing with negative people or people who, you know, maybe aren't aware awake to these concepts haven't taken your class and don't realize the impacts of their negative of their negativity how can someone who like me and you and hopefully now all the people listening are aware of positive psychology how can we deal with them and have relationships with them without you know, trying to change them, but also protecting ourselves and, and our beliefs? That is a great question. And it's a really challenging one to answer in a general way because they're going to range from people who have occasional bouts of, of negative thinking um, to people who are dealing with real issues that could be mental illness related or are not but but are really just bringing us down and um that's why i hesitate to answer because in some cases um you can 
potentially help them by asking questions that might bring the possibilities rather than the impossibilities to light. You know, tell me about a time when, when that did work for you. Tell me about a time when you were successful in that regard. Tell me about a time when you were feeling strong, you know, and you might be able to help them just not change them, but just see that there are things that they can dwell on that are actually quite positive. Yeah. Um, but in other cases, there are going to be relationships where they might just not be right for you, at least not right now. And these are people who, depending on the relationship, you can sit with them and say, hey, it seems like things have been really challenging recently. You know, And maybe you want to talk them through it. Maybe you want to suggest that they, um, if, if, it, if it's deeper than that, that maybe they need professional help. So you know, as a friend, you want to take as many steps you can to help them and to be with them. And maybe it's a challenging time in life and even to, to get them help if that's what they need. And sometimes that's the case um, before you cut them out of your life yeah, completely. And look, and there are certainly some relationships where it's just not every, every relationship has a shelf life, yeah, right? Whether it's romantic or otherwise, some yeah. are an engagement at a coffee shop. Some are the rest of your life. And they go through phases and issues and challenges and wonderful times and hard times. Yeah. So it's difficult to an- to answer that one, but there's certainly ways to to try to nudge them towards thinking about what might be going well. What if the negativity is specific towards you? Like you know, they have fear and they're taking their life experience and trying to you know reflecting that back at you and being met with that negativity for your life experience that might be different from theirs of just people not understanding each other. And I think there's so much of that in our, um, current climate that we're in Mm -hmm. right now. Right. How do you, do you have any, you know, feedback or advice there? Can you, can be more specific about the, um, about the situation? Yeah. Like if, you know, if you have something that you're doing that the person that you're talking to about, doesn't agree or doesn't relate to and you feel strong in your choice and you want to be able to still have them in your life and communicate with them with love but you're you know you're being met with negativity because there's just not an understanding there there's a lack of understanding you know whether it's with politics or whether it's with a, a life choice when it's just two you know really conflicting viewpoints but you know, one is really coming from a negative fear place. Yeah. You know, again, that's a, that's a tricky one to answer, you know, based on, based on, because every situation is so unique. Yeah. And, you know, if you're talking about a life choice, you know, uh, one would hope that, that for the most part, those people that are close to us are supportive of choices that we believe to be healthy. Yeah. Then again, um, there are parents who, have experience in life that might cause them to think one way versus another. There are colleagues or friends that have these perspectives in life that that are really challenging to challenge, <laughs> right? So for those people, um, you know, it's it's a tough one to answer again because I think there's so many factors involved that you know there are people who are going to be challenged you're going to have uh, difficult times i i would just say that it's all really boils down to communication yeah you know the more you can communicate the better and 
shut, once you shut down communication, you know, there's there's a phrase uh, we agree to disagree, yeah, which I have a, I have a real problem with because it so often um, means that we're just not willing to have this conversation. And so, if we're talking about something here that is that is that big in our lives, then we're talking about having to push through really challenging conversations. I think when one, when one person's not willing to have that conversation, we're looking at a we're looking at a dead end. And that can be either side. That can be someone who says, "No, this is my life choice, and you have to accept it." Or you know, you're bringing me down with you know the fact that you don't accept me. Well, that's not necessarily productive either. Um, both sides have to be willing to have the conversation to really understand the other. You know, when we respect the other person, when we, if, the, if that relationship is important enough that we have that those conversations, then then we have to keep pushing through. Mm. You know, I, you know, I, I I can't advocate for cutting off friendship or or ending ending communication because it would be be unfair given the I don't know the situation specifically. Right. Um, that's why I go back to communication being so key. And look, there are tools for communication. There are tools where we can we can. In the book, we write about something called prep, which is um, tools that we recommend for people who are having really challenging relationships um, to be able to say, um, "I feel like you're invalidating me." To be able to say, um, "I think that you," uh, I, I feel like you're not listening um that you're going to anger to you know really quickly that we are you know so on and so forth so i think there are tools that we can use that help deal with those barriers to communication that can be really helpful you know yeah oh i love those i, yeah. I love communication tips yeah i mean so i mean prep is an interesting one it's the most evidence-based um evidence-based process that we have when it comes to being able to help people with with their issues yeah. right so you know just knowing you know for, is I'll, that I'll, an I'll acronym? Give you the, prep is um it is and i can't recall what it stands it's okay for. it's just a google um, away we've all got phones <laughs> exactly you know what i'm sorry it is uh prevention and relationship enhancement program oh cool yeah and the yellow flags one is escalation uh one is invalidation so escalation would be something like, um, uh, look, you promised me that you were going to clean up the dishes today. Well, what's your problem? Why don't you chill out? You know, mm. why, why, maybe I need a day off. Well, why are you yelling at me now? Now you're yelling at me right. and we go up and up and up. So how can we, how can we resolve that? Um, another one would be invalidation, right? That's to say, you know, just to say something like that's stupid. Well, all of a sudden that stupid means you're stupid or I feel stupid, you know, or it's an eye roll or that's so obvious, which means the same thing as you're stupid. But right. when we start doing that, um, people don't, all of a sudden, that space is going to shut down a conversation. So, you know, can, can we please have a conversation where you, you know, let's just start our, let's just start our sentences with the word I instead of the word you. Yeah. Right. So instead of saying every, you always do this. Well, that's over. But instead of saying, I really feel like this, you know, and so you're not accusing. Right. Um, in other ones, uh, withdrawal, for example, right? Just stop talking about it. That's a challenging one, which means you're never going to get anywhere. So just knowing that there are these tools that we can use to say, hey, you know, this is, I, I feel like we're dealing with withdrawal here and it's important that we 
talk about this um, is that first step. So when we're talking about challenging relationships, there are certainly tools that we can use um, that can help yeah. us sometimes get through the barriers. You know what? Not always. Yeah. Sometimes it's not going to work. Sometimes we just have to try our very best and sometimes realize maybe it's not the right time for it and hopefully we can pick it up at another time. Yeah. I think as long as we feel like we've done our best and we've you know really tried our best to to try all different angles, you know, and, and question even our own selves to say how else can I can I can I be involved in this conversation in a way that might allow for better communication. <laughs> Yeah. Those, that, those, those are the essentials. Yeah, oh, that's really helpful. Okay, one last thing before I ask you the questions I ask everyone. Please, <laughs> go um, ahead. I, I'd love to hear you talk about deliberate practice versus flow and just touch on that. I've heard you talk about it before and I thought it was really fascinating. Sure. So deliberate practice, um, as we mentioned before, is very specific goals, mentors, um, uh, teachers, the right kind of um, instruction, um, and really the right level of challenge. So you're pushing yourself so hard that, um, you know, the way I put it, it's like, it's like if you're walking up a hill with a bag of boulders and it's, and you're making it up that hill, you want to put another boulder in there. So you're pushing, you're just making it up that hill. It's forced evolution, right? Uh, according to Anders Ericsson, who is the, who is the man behind deliberate practice, Deliberate practice and flow cannot coexist. Flow is when we lose ourselves. We lose track of time. We lose track of many things. We don't hear the phone ring. We don't hear the text go off um, because we're so deeply engaged in whatever it is we're doing. Podcasts, listening to music, climbing a mountain, uh, reading a book. The, 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 the issue there is that in deliberate practice, we never go into flow by definition because if we go into flow – we're not focused on our goals enough. Um, we're not pushing ourselves hard enough. We have to be constantly aware and deliberate practice of what we're doing. Otherwise, we're not going to be pushing ourselves to the level where we get that much better at it. Right. So basically, there's no room for flow in deliberate practice. Mm. Now that said, we're talking about we're talking about uh, very very specific um, scientific definitions. So, for example, um, is it possible to engage in deliberate practice? Well, I'm going to do this. Is it possible to improve at a very um, steady rate if we don't have immediate feedback that's demanded in deliberate practice? Yeah, sure it is. We might not be improving as quickly, but we're still improving. So in a way, it's a bit of a compromise. Um, but the idea is... Ultimately, for deliberate practice, which is the theoretically um, most intense form of improvement, we can't be in flow. Oh, that's really fascinating. Yeah. All right. So, something um, that I ask everyone that comes on the show is, you know, what are your personal morning routines and evening routines and and things that you do every day to start your day and relax at the end of a long day. Um, let's see. That's a great question. Uh, so every day I start my day by drinking, <laughs> by drinking, uh, let's go anywhere, couldn't it? Uh, by drinking 32 ounces of water. First thing I do. Nice. Um, Giving your insides a bath. 
Exactly. Hydrating, getting ready for the day, the whole thing. Um, give my insides a bath, like prepping. Um, what I have done, not as consistently as I would like, but I, but definitely more consistently, is I wake up before anyone else here wakes up and I meditate. Um, I'd like to do it every day. I don't get, don't get it that consistently, but when I do, it is wonderful. Um, and then the third thing I do is always sit down with my son and make sure that we hang out during breakfast. Um, and that is very, very special time for me. Um, even if it's 10 minutes, uh, the end of the day to, well, let's say the end of the day to relax, I try to get in a workout in as often as possible. And that's pretty consistently, even if it means stopping in the gym and, and doing something for 30 to 40 minutes, I'll get that in. That is, that's essential for me being even close to sane on a consistent basis. Um, so exercise is really big for me. And then the last thing I do before I go to sleep every single night is <clears throat> I go into my son's room and I give him a kiss on the forehead while he's sleeping. He's nine. And I tell him that I love him more than anything in the world. Mm. So that is, uh, those are my daily routines. I love you know, that. I, I will add one other thing, which is yeah. on my best days, I absolutely speak to friends. So I try to get on the phone, have a conversation with somebody every day. Cool. But no, but I would say that most consistently is that end of the day. I've done it every single day since he was born for nine years. And I promised myself I would do it every single day until he leaves the house, which uh, I might not let him do for many, many years. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What is your advice for moving to New York City and why did you want to move there right after high school or college like you mentioned earlier? Um, I knew that I wanted to go into the music business and it was either here in classical music, it's either here or London, period. Mm -hmm. And I had a great job offer from an amazing woman who I worked with uh, my entire career as an agent. Um, and she was extraordinary. Uh, she had been in the business 25 years. Um, she was a remarkable mentor. Um, I could not have asked for a more uh, um, wise, caring, uh, driven, in a good way, person. So I was lucky to come here. Um, and I got an offer to work in London about two years later. And I said no, because I, I knew my, my parents were far more important to me. And they lived in Pittsburgh, so I, would, I could still drive back on occasion. Uh, so, so that worked. You know, my grandparents are here in New York as well, but originally it was, I knew I was meant to be in the music business and there was no question, no question, never even uh, an iota that I would move here and that's what I would get into. What's your favorite part of living in New York City? Oh boy. That's a great question. Uh, are we talking, are we talking podcast or are we talking about me and you here? Both. I, I right. think it's both. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I can get super detailed. If it was like, you got to go eat, eat here, you got to try this. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll um, we can do that too, but we can do that after. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> All right, perfect. Perfect. So, uh, you know, New York is like a drug in a wonderful way, often, um, in that the speed and the pace and the level that people work at is mind blowing. You know, when I go to the opera and I go as often as I can, 
it's like, you know, it's one of the greatest opera houses in the world. When I go to the museum, when I go as often as I can, um, it's one of the great museums in the world. And by the way, if it's not the Met or if it's not MoMA or if it's not one of the other, you know, well-known, it's a smaller museum, which is still amazing. If I go to a theater, if I go to um, uh, restaurants, you know, if you go anywhere, things move super quickly, but like the levels are super, super high. So you get attuned to this flow, to this um, pace, to this rhythm. And, you know, once you leave, uh, it can be great to get a rest, but then you kind of jones for it. And you want to come back and you want to eat the food and you want to hear the music and you want to be around the people and you want to have the level of conversation. And that um, those things are are really uh, are really extraordinary. Mm. And, and look, and there are so many people here. There's not a day that goes by that if you want to meet someone who is who is unique and fascinating, providing that you are open to um, the variety of folks who are here, you can meet you, you can meet unique and fascinating every block you walk down. And that's that's really incredible. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That was yeah. I like how you articulated all that. Yeah. Thank you. All right, so these well, are you have a lot, lot to look forward to, Katie. Thank you. A lot. I know. I'm, I'm really excited. <laughs> and we get you here soon too. See, that's the other thing. People come to New York and we're like, oh my gosh, we have a whole new influx of like super cool, fascinating people. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, these ones are these ones are a little bit quicker. So just say kind of the first thing that comes to your mind. Favorite color? Sure. Blue. Favorite day of the week? Friday. One thing that you wish more people knew about positive psychology. Or psychology in general? That there are... Positive psychology shows us that we have a choice. A choice to be happy. A choice to have meaning. A choice to live a a fulfilling life. And that there are actions that we can take to change the way our lives are and to really thrive. Mm, Cool. What's one thing you wish people knew about you? Huh. Um, gosh. I have such a huge array of interests. Maybe it's that I find everyone that I meet fascinating in some way. I find people fascinating. Um, whether they are superstars or they are just walking down the street and doing their own thing. I don't know. I, I find them really intriguing. I find human beings really intriguing. You know? Yeah. I think my friends, my friends would probably say that, um, that Dan Leonard is the only guy who loves football and opera with equal passion. <laughs> um, and that's probably true. <laughs> that's great. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I'm just fascinated by human beings yeah. in a really loving way. Like I, I just, uh, Yeah. I guess I'd go there. Yeah, cool. What's your greatest lesson on relationships? My, the greatest lesson I've learned? Yeah, or anything you want. Yeah, you've learned or that has helped you. That's a, you know, there's so many lessons. That's a tricky one. I guess I'd say that Relationships are the most important thing in our lives. Mm. Um, my parents were were the most important thing in my life, and my son is now the most important thing in my life. And and his mother and my friends and my colleagues and they 
make our world what it is. The people we surround us ourselves with are really who so much of who we end up being. And people forget that too often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Where are you with spirituality and God and what do you think happens when we die? Hmm. You asked me some big questions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like the biggest question. <laughs> that is kind of the biggest question. I think that when we die... put this I don't know what happens when we die but I don't believe in any of the things that we traditionally tend to think of in um, in western cultures mm-hmm. I don't I wish I did I really wish that I could say I believe that I would see my mother and my father again um, that I would see my grandparents again that I would see my dog again <laughs> um, I really hope that's the case I think that we're just really this incredible confluence of events that allowed us to live for whatever, however many years we live on this earth. And, and I don't know what happens afterwards, but I don't think about it very much. I tend to think more about what I can do while I'm here, who I can do it with while I'm here and the good I can bring, um, and the fun I can have and the relationships I can nurture, um, while I'm here. Yeah. What happens afterwards? You know, that's, that remains to be seen. Yeah. Well, speaking of being here and in a body, what is the best thing you've eaten in the last week? Ooh. The best thing I've eaten in the last week is this insane dessert. Uh, there's a restaurant called Empillon, E-M-P-I-L-L-I-O-N. There are a couple of them here in here in uh, New York and a buddy of mine just opened he's he's one of the owners he opened uh, the newest one in Midtown and the chef is amazing and they do this it looks exactly like a half an avocado mm-hmm. but it's not I don't know what it is but it's like one of the greatest desserts I've ever had in my entire life wow it's like it was just I just kept eating going what the I can't you know I can't actually on this podcast use the words I was using but um, and just kept going and finally David came over and he said how you guys like the meal and I'm like dude what is this it's insane. He goes, yeah, you know, it's, uh, he wouldn't tell me. <laughs> oh, no, I really want to know. <laughs> well, you're moving to New York. Go to MPL on, I think it's 52nd Street or 53rd Street. It opened last Thursday. Huh. And get that line, that avocado dessert because it's insane. Wow. I'm Is not even like, like a, a big pit? dessert guy. Is there like a, a something? No, no, it's, it's not even, I don't think there's any, I don't even know there's avocado in it. It looks like there's half an avocado. It sits on this, what looks like snow, but it's lime ice shavings. It's just like. Cool. It was, like, incredibly cool. Yeah. It was incredibly fun. cool. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to get that for sure. Oh, yes. Yes, you do. You want to get, like, two of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, this is kind of the same, in the same vein of recommending things. So I'll just kind of okay. prompt you a couple categories and you can recommend things. So okay. let's start with music, since you're a music guy. So oh, yeah. what have you been listening to lately? What is something that you think people should check out or listen to or something, you know, of all time that you love? Anything you want to share with, related to music? Music-wise, it's really difficult to assign music to, to people because you know everyone has their preferences. Mm-hmm. So my best friend um, is a huge hip-hop guy, right? And um, he's just—he's one of the—he's like the biggest photographer in hip-hop history, right? This guy Jonathan Mannion. He used to 
just boom hip hop out of his room. And I was like, dude, I don't get it, you know? And I'd have opera and classical music going on in my room and he didn't get it. And over the years, you know, he finally asked me a couple years ago, can you do a playlist for me in classical music? And I was like, absolutely, I can do a playlist in classical music. Would you do the same for me with hip hop? So, you know, it's difficult to recommend something and say, everyone's gonna love this. Uh, that said, for me, it's Bach. There is something about Johann Sebastian Bach that I think is the closest that I've ever heard to, as a follow-up to your question before, to God. Um, there are moments in his music where I feel like he is expressing something that, that he's speaking to me directly from 350 years ago. When my mother passed, I heard a piece that by him I'd never heard, and I thought I had heard everything. I, you know, I'm an avid collector, um, and it just brought me to tears. And afterwards, I realized I did research on it. He had written it right before his brother had gone off to war, and clearly here was someone who was afraid of losing someone who he deeply loved. There are moments where he throws me into such extraordinary like moments of bliss that it's like he is speaking directly from God or the angels. Uh, it's a strange thing. Uh, but somehow we connected, me and Bach. <laughs> you know, when I was four, my father came charging into my room at about five in the morning, I'm guessing, because it was dark outside. And I was playing music on my little plastic Fisher-Price radio, uh, my Fisher-Price um, record player. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he charged in. He goes, what the hell is... And he stopped. He goes, is that Bach? I said, yeah. And he said, okay. It's okay. You can just keep turning down a little bit. And he was so happy. But I think ever since I first heard Bach, there has been a connection that's that makes me know that someone else out there understood me. Mm. And I think when it comes to music, no matter what you're listening to, when you feel understood, when you feel heard, it's like having a great relationship. It means you know that you're not alone. And there's there may not be anything more beautiful in life than that. Yeah, I think that's why art is so great. Like a movie that makes you feel less alone or music that makes you feel less alone or a book or a podcast. I think that's what we all are seeking. Yes, 100%. I, I think you put that beautifully. Yeah. That's exactly it. And good times and bad times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just, just to know see you're yourself. not alone. Yeah, to see it reflected. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so right. speaking of, of movie then, what's a, a movie that you always love or something you've seen recently that you want to recommend? Huh. Um, I'm a big fan of movies. There, there are a number that I love. Um, you know, I guess I could talk about a couple. Uh, the movie that moved me really profoundly a couple of years ago was a movie called The Tree of Life uh, by Terrence Malick. And um, some people walked out of the theater, but as soon as it was over, I turned to the person I was with and I said, I need to go for a walk by myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I did and I went back and saw it again the next weekend it just I think as a new father at the time uh, as someone having someone who's who had experienced death recently uh, of a family member it spoke so profoundly about those joys and challenges in life and that was really wonderful so Tree of Life really really moved me um, when it comes to the question of happiness and um, excellence, uh, the idea of pursuing something we're passionate about, and that's something that 
I think passion is the thing I'm most passionate about right now. The movie Whiplash that came out about two years ago, um, I thought spoke profoundly to that, which is how do we pursue something in life that is incredibly meaningful to us? When are the pathways healthy and when are they really unhealthy? Um, I think that movie does it better than than anything I've I've ever seen. Yeah, same director as La La Land. Yeah, exactly, exactly, which I have not seen yet. I'm dying to see. I totally was ready for it. I was going to, I was, my, you know, my boy totally wants to see it. So, um, and he's, uh, he sings and acts and dances and stuff. So we were all queued up yesterday and I realized it wasn't available yet on iTunes. So I was oh, like, no. dude, I'm so sorry. So, yeah, you have to yeah. take him to the theater. <laughs> I was, you know what? I, it was still out there. I'd take, take him there in a heartbeat. Oh, oh, you're in like that weird in-between yeah. moment. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But when he and I went to see Sing, all right, there's a movie. He and I went to see Sing. I don't think I've laughed that hard in a long, long time. Sing mm. was awesome. Cool. Sing was awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Last but not least, book. Any book that you want to recommend to people other than your own, which, of <laughs> course, is available and people should definitely check out. Thank you for saying so. Um, you know, the book that, that changed – there are a number of books that, that I found uh, were key to my – that were that were kind of how do I put it? Sort of like we talked about with music. It was they were there when we when I needed them the most. Um, that they made me understand that I was not alone. But the book that always stands out for me is a book called The Gift. Um, it's by Lewis Hyde, H Y D E, and it's got to be thirty five years old now. But um, I had gone to see my mentor, my college mentor, well uh, about ten years ago, and. Um, I had taken him, I, I, I went to see him and he said, what are you doing? And I said, no, you know, I'm doing this and doing that and doing the other, doing any writing because he, he was a lit professor. I said, yeah, I'm doing some kind of writing, but it's really for myself. He said, let me see it. And uh, I said, no, Ron, of all people, you're not allowed to see it. His name is Ron Sharp. He was a former editor of the Kenyan Review Literary Journal and head of the English department of Kenyan. I said, you are not allowed to see it. And he cajoled and pushed and prodded. Fine. So I finally sent it to him and he called me. It's about 80 pages of it. And he called me and he said, I want you to come up and stay the night with me and Ines, his wife, and I want to talk to you about what you sent me. So I went up there, and he said, there's something here. It's, there's something special here. And I said, Ron, you know, why the beep? Would anyone want to read what I had to say? Because it was really a journal on, on losing, on dealing with my mother's cancer and issues that I had had and even my son's illness. And, um, and he didn't, people would want to hear it. He just started talking about a book he wanted me to read. And it was this book, it was The Gift. And in The Gift, which is kind of meditation, philosophy, um, on the gifts we give others. The basic idea is when we give of ourselves freely, without expectation of return, whether it's writing a book or creating a work of art or giving an object, we give it without expecting anything in return. That is when we can really experience the greatest um, sense of uh, generosity and gratitude. And um, really, that's when we're ourselves. So when we offer, as you do, a podcast, or if I offer a book, or I'd say a lecture um, or a keynote, um, or just a conversation without abandoning, without considering how much I'm getting paid or without considering um, what 
the knock-on effect of my career is. That's when we're really living our lives most fully. And the gift is beautiful that way. Yeah, that's great. I'll have to check out that book for sure. Well, thank you so much for that and everything you shared. It was was really nice to meet you and, and chat with you. And the name of this podcast is Let It Out. So when I offer that to you to let it out, is there anything else that you feel like you want to share that you didn't get to? Or I just want to make sure we've like completely wrung you dry for everything. <laughs> uh, here's what I'm going to say. What I'm going to say is this. Everyone out there wants to be great at something. They want to be great in their work. They want to be great in their lives as partners, as friends, as mothers, as fathers, as professionals, you name it. And everyone out there for the most part, wants to live a fulfilling life. They want to have well-being. Um, both of those things are absolutely possible. I think when you get to a certain point, one of the things that, the thing that we must be aware of is that being unique is not necessarily the easiest thing in the world. Pursuing that thing that you're most passionate about in the way that's right for you, not right for somebody else, not right for your neighbor, not right for your teacher, not right for anybody, is hard. And that uh, that bravery goes that requires bravery if we're going to get there. You know, my favorite line to describe this, and maybe in all of literature, is Walt Whitman. The line, I sound my barbaric yawp over the roofs of the world. A lot of us know that line because we saw Ethan Hawke yawp in Dead Poet Society. But a lot, and a lot of us know that line because we've read Song of Myself. But the line that comes before it is the line that really gets me. And that's sort of how I want to just, what I want to share with everyone which is um, Whitman writes, I too am untranslatable. And I, I read that line, I think, you're Walt Whitman. You can't be untranslatable. You know, you are one of the great masters of language. But I think it's important for us all to understand that all of us are untranslatable. The word yop is a word that Whitman made up because he didn't have a word to describe himself. And a lot of us struggle to describe ourselves in language. And that can often be the ceiling that we hit, the barrier that we face. Sometimes letting it out, being who you are, means letting out that yawp. It means, it means knowing that you're unable to put into words who you are. And it means just taking action in the service of pursuing those things that are most important to you, who make that make you who you are. So I encourage people to take that one brave step, that final brave step. And in doing so, really pursue that unique voice of theirs and the unique life that's, that's possible for us all. Mm-hmm. That was great. So well said, just like everything else. Thank you again so much for doing this podcast. That was great. Well, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. You're wonderful. I mean, you know what? I got to tell you, podcasts are made by, by, the, by the interviewers. So you know, thank you for asking great questions. conversation with Dan Lerner. I hope you guys learned a lot from that. I know I did and I just had a great time talking with him. He was a really, really nice guy. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to the podcast as always. I'm so happy that you're still listening right now to my ramblings. And we mentioned the Via Strengths personality test and like I said, I took it and my top strength was kindness. And this is what it said about my strength. It says, I feel kind of weird telling you my strength. It sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, but really this is just what the personality test said. So this is what it says. Your top strength is kindness, which means you have a strong tendency to be nice to people. 
You find it easy and pleasurable to help others, and you act kindly for its own sake rather than some other benefit. And then it says, sign up to try your free via strengths test. Anyway, if you guys want to do it, it's free online. You can also purchase to find more information. I didn't do that, but I don't know. Maybe I should. Let me know what your strengths are. And also, if you're still listening right now, the emoji for this week's episode is the trophy. It's, you know, a golden trophy is is what it is. And I think you deserve a trophy for listening all the way to the end, for listening perhaps every week, or perhaps you're new. Either way, you meandered your way to this long, tangential conversation with me and this guy named Dan Lerner, you know? So thank you for listening. I love you guys. If you like this podcast, if it gives you value, if it makes you feel less alone, if it makes you smile, you know, keep listening because the guests are different every week and they're, you know, I was like, are people going to like this episode? I hope so. Hopefully you do. Um, But just know that I have a lot of diverse guests on and check out the archives if you want to learn more about what I do here and check out the future episodes if you want to hear more. That's a great way to do it. And leave a review on iTunes, share it with a friend. That helps out the show a lot. What also helps is if you support the lovely sponsors of the podcast like care of supplements and again i just love them they're great if you go to takecareof.com you can take your personalized quiz and then you can get your personalized beautifully packaged high quality supplements specific to you and if you use the code katie at checkout that's k-a-t-i-e at checkout you can get 50 percent off your order all right another thing i just want to say they're not even a sponsor this week but I'm just going to plug Dr. Ginger's toothpaste. They were a sponsor weeks ago, like maybe even a month ago, but I use their toothpaste and I'm obsessed with it. It tastes so good. I'm actually excited to brush my teeth. She also makes an oil pulling-esque mouthwash with coconut oil. And anyway, ever since I had her on the podcast, Dr. Ginger, she's a dentist who came up with these holistic products with great ingredients. Anyway, if you want to use the code COCO. 2017 that's coco2017 coco2017 15% off um your next order on amazon anyway i love them i also love uh care of supplements and i love you guys and thank you so much for listening i will talk to you next week on wednesday that's when these episodes come out and remember the emoji if you're still listening to me rambling it's the trophy you deserve a trophy. We all deserve a trophy. <gasps> Should we design trophies that say let it out and, and keep... That's kind of cheesy. That's dumb. That's dumb. I forget it. I pretend I never said that. Could edit it out, but I'm not. Um, we're just going to go with it. All right. I love you. Send me the trophy. You can comment it on Instagram. You can tweet it at me. My handle everywhere is at Katie Dalebow. That's my name. Um, and again, you guys are great. Especially Rambly this week. All right. Let's just uh, end it here. Bye.